Uh, you guys ready? So if you're getting your coffee, making your way in, just come in as quickly as possible. But for the rest of us, it's time to start. Do you know how to clear the background? There you go. Now put the slide back up. You are doing awesome, Mitch. Amazing. So we're going to pick up from the life of David. And uh, we've been talking about David for the last few weeks. And uh, we took a break. Let a couple. Uh, I was out of town. And then we had someone else here last week. Did you guys enjoy uh, Rashid from Pakistan? Did you guys enjoy hearing that? Was that pretty good? It was really awesome. He said he's really blessed. He, he called me. He's like, I just, you know, I just really... I mean, he travels around a lot, but he was—he really had a lot of high things to say about you all. So, um, I was very honored in what he had shared. But um, yeah, I was a really good guy. So, but this week we're gonna—we're picking back up um, with David. And if you don't know who David is, he's a very prominent figure in the scriptures. Uh, David uh, is his life is highlighted by the Lord, and the Lord actually points to David. And the Lord points to David for a lot of reasons. It points to David for the good that he did, but it also points to David for the bad and the ugly that also came out of his life. We tend to worship our saints, or we worship these people in the Bible, and we think that they never did anything wrong. And one of the things the scripture does is it does not hide uh, people's flaws. It does not hide the failures that people have. And it, and it also shows that even in their failures, that God will still interact with them. It shows us the, the cause and effect of a lot of things. And it also shows us that God is willing to be merciful even in spite of our own foolishness. Aren't you glad? Right? It's just really good. It's really, so this, you know, it shows us the hum, human side of, of our relationship with the Lord. So he's a pretty big figure. Jerusalem's called the City of David. The flag, uh, Israel's flag with the star is called the Star of David. Jesus, one of the titles Jesus is referred to as is as the son of David. So he's a type of Christ. He's the prophetic fulfillment of the line of Judah. There was a prophetic word given in the book of Genesis by Jacob over Judah. And Jacob proclaimed over Judah that the scepter will come out of Judah. And so that the rulership of the people was going to be of the line of Judah. So when David was called, anointed, set apart to become king, it was the beginning of the prophetic fulfillment that God was going to bring through the line of Judah. So it's important that there's a shift that happened through David's life. Uh, he's a type of Christ, which means, of course, there are things in his life that emulate Jesus. There are things that he did and things that were performed through his life that were a mirror of Jesus. Um, he learned, and we learn from his life because of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So before we get into this, we're going to jump in here right here. We're going to go into chapter 18, but I want to lay out for you a cast of characters. There's a cast of characters in this melodrama. And who are those characters? Well, we have this first guy named Saul. If you don't know who Saul is, Saul is a guy, the nation of Israel, they ended up at this point because the nation of Israel wanted a king. They were established as a theocracy, which means God was their ruler, that God was going to oversee the people, and he was going to speak to the people through prophets, through judges. That was his method of interacting with the people at the time. Now he interacts with us by his spirit, but at the time he had ordained that, and the people got tired of listening to the prophets, and they said, we want a king because we want to be just like everybody else. That's a problem. Christian, you're not like everybody else. You should never want to be like everybody else, even though your nature maybe want to be. They wanted to be like everybody else, so God gave them a king just like everybody else. They wanted a king for reasons of vanity, and so God gave them a very vain king, a king that was all about himself, a king that, 
was really all about his personal image, a king that was consumed by whether people liked him or whether people didn't like him. He was a very vain person. And so Saul was a current king. He didn't start out that way, but he ended up that way. He departed from the Lord. God had called him, and Saul in his heart had made some decisions away from God. And he actually, Saul's biggest problems, are, if you look at Saul and you want to kind of condense what Saul's problems were, they were twofold. Number one, he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. You see that again and again. Jesus gives him a simple set of instructions, and he can't follow them. And it disqualifies him. One of the things that disqualifies us is when we can't follow a simple set of instructions. We have a simple set of instructions that God has given to us as believers. It's very easy. Discipleship is rooted in a, in a very simple way. We're called to become disciples. Jesus told the church to go and make disciples. He didn't say go and make converts. Converts are important, but discipleship is the goal. Conversion isn't the goal. Conversion with the purposes of discipleship is the goal, if you understand. So he commands us to make, the Hebrew word would be talmudim, bring them under the scripture, bring them under the word, right? The root word in the Greek is disciple and it means a disciplined learner. Go and make disciplined learners. Go and make people who not only learn things, but live lives that go according to what they learn. That's what it means to be a disciple. So when you get, some of you in your workplace, you have a minimum standard. Schools have minimum standards. Everything in life has a minimum standard. Discipleship has a minimum standard. There's a basic set of instructions, a simple set of instructions for every believer. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give, and live a life of mission. Reach those who don't know Christ. Be, live a life of invitation. Live a life that demonstrates Jesus' love. Live a life where you're trying to reach other people who don't know him. That's a simple set of instructions. Most Christians can't follow a simple set of instructions. Saul could not stand in kingdom which is what he was disqualified from, was his kingship. His kingship was, his sonship was never disqualified, but his kingship was. So you can be a son or a daughter, and that will never be disqualified, but your kingship can be. The role and the position of your authority, although you're given it, you're never going to fully manifest it. Saul couldn't stand in kingship for, the very, for a very simple reason, that he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. What a radical five is, that's our basic line of discipleship. It is a standard for all Christians, not the elite, not the guys who are mature. From day one to day whatever, infinity, the believer is called to follow. That, that foundation is based upon that. Reading your Bible, praying, committing and connecting to church, financially giving and living on mission. You will never achieve anything from a kingdom's perspective until you're doing all five. Amen. Ever. Amen. You say, I don't believe that. Well, you keep right on thinking that and you're going to see... <laughs> Somebody's going to be wrong and it's not going to be the Lord. I can assure you of that. Somebody's going to move and it won't be him. So that, that's the foundation. The Bible teaches us how can we run with the horses if we can't keep up with the footmen. If you can't do basic things, you're never going to do the elite things. If you don't know remedial math, you're not launching rockets. I got news for you. It's true. It's true. You never forget calculus. It's out of your realm. It's never going to be touched by you. So it's okay. People say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person. I don't feel like I need to. That was Saul's second problem, is he had better ideas than the Lord. Problem one, he can't follow simple instructions. Problem two is he thinks his ideas are better. Jesus says this, Saul says that. God says, I want this you to do this. Saul says, no, I got a better idea. I'm going to do that. And he disqualified himself from kingdom. So if you understand sonship 
And you understand kingdom, which is dominion, which is a dominion realm, Saul could not access, live from, or come forth in the dominion realm because he disqualified himself. Church, this is where the church lies today. Oh, we speak of one day that the glory is going to be outpoured. One day there's going to be this great thing. It's here right now. Right here, right now, not tomorrow. The issue isn't whether the glory is here. The issue is whether we know how to partner with it and whether we know how to manifest it. That's the issue. We're waiting on God. He's waiting on us. And one of the things is, is that we align with his purposes. And the second thing is we learn to follow a simple set of instructions. Those five things flowing in your life create the current by which God can operate. Through the word of God, he gives you wisdom. Through prayer and intercession, you pull down heaven. Through community and committing and connecting to a church. Not 15, not 20. I bounce all over town. I'm here every six weeks. I've had somebody tell me, you're one of the churches on my rotation, Pastor. Same guy said, when I need a touch of God, I come here. I'm like, oh. I said, do you think about what you just said? Which means you're not getting a touch of God anywhere else. But when I need an encounter and I need something from the Lord, this is where I come. I'm like, oh, okay. So what are you actually gaining from these other things that you're going through your circuit riding through all these churches? They're woefully ignorant. When a believer takes that position, they think they're right, but they're woefully ignorant. We are a universal body of Christ, but we are committed and called to commit to a local community where we invest ourselves and we allow others to invest back into us. We're not spreading the love all over town. It's true. If you go to your wife and you go, I got six wives all over town. Honey, I'm visiting you once every six weeks. That wouldn't go too well for her. You're called to find a local body where you can grow, where it's impacting you, where you can play a role, and either your life is growing or you feel like you can be a part of a movement. You identify with where the church is and what they're all about, and you commit there. And you connect there. Thank you. This is a summons. Financially given opens up the financial resources of heaven. This is why he tells us to do this. It opens up the financial resources of heaven to you. God has created a way for us to access that supernaturally, and it comes through the tithes and the offerings. There's no plan B. It's plan A. There's no plan B. Where do you want to be? According to your faith, so be it unto you. As for me and my house, ladies and gentlemen, this is how we are. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to live. That's what Joshua said to the people. Y'all can go and serve the gods of the culture. You can all go and have a mindset like everybody else. You can all go think like everybody else. You can be like the nominal Christians. You can be like the average Christians. Or you can choose a life of an elite believer. It's up to you. But as for me and my house, that's right. That's right. We're going up the mountain. That's what Abraham said, the same thing. Stay behind with the asses. You stay here with all the stubborn and all the idiots. Because me and the boy are going to the mountain to worship. We're not staying in the valley. We're going up the mountain. This is what it looks like to go up the mountain. It looks like this. Going up the mountain. We're going to commit, we're going to do the work, we're going to discipline our lives, and we're going to live in this direction. And we're going to access what is rightfully ours. Saul departed from the Lord, so we have this image of Saul, Saul's problem. We learn a huge lesson from Saul. Somebody who's called to dominion. You're all called to dominion. You're all called to kingdom. Kingdom is the rulership and the power and the unbreaking glory of God in your life. Does anybody want that? 
It's right. It doesn't happen by default. It just doesn't magically show up. It doesn't. You have to access it. And you don't access it according to your will. You access it according to his ways. The way that he has prescribed. To him be glory in the church. If you think the church is insignificant, you will never know glory. Ever. Christ, to, to him be glory. The literal word is in and through. It's the same word of the abide. That same word is the same word of the abiding glory. The presence that comes into us. The glory is in the church. Not in churches, not in para-ministries, in the church. Only thing in time and space Jesus is building is his church. So you can talk to me, oh, I'm building this, I'm building, you can tell me all the things you're building. You're not partnering with Jesus unless you're building his church. Oh, I don't know about that, Pastor. I just, I have a different view. Well, you keep on being Saul, you keep on operating in the spirit of Saul, and you keep thinking you've got better ideas. Go right ahead. You're free to do so. There's no yoke upon you. But you're also free to manifest the power of your choice. You will manifest the power of that choice. You will manifest what you choose will come forth. Living a life on mission, man. We're reaching people who don't know Jesus. We see miracles that way. We see transformation that way. Something happens to people when they reach the Lord. The Bible says joy is one of the inherited gifts of the soul winner. You want some joy? Go lead some people to Jesus. It's true. You say, I talked to 10, talk to 100. There's plenty of them. Jesus said the harvest is white. The workers are few. Joy is the inheritance of the soul winner. Say they wouldn't pray. Well, they come to church. Well, they I got two of them to come with. That's great. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about that when they come with you, Alex? Awesome. You bring them all the time. Awesome. All the time. They don't all stick. They don't all stay. Alex is dragging them in the door. Hey, Pastor Kevin, I just want to meet you, this guy. <laughs> Where'd you find him? Oh man, he was at the grocery store. He used to stand there and he said, "Hey, you need to come." To... <laughs> Drags him in. He's like, "I feel great." <laughs> He's inheriting. That's the joy that's attached to soul winning or reaching for people, just that, just the fact that we do. So the second guy in the story is Saul, Jonathan's firstborn, and he's the heir. So we have Saul, we have Jonathan, we have David, the shepherd boy, and the anointed future king. So we pick up the story here in chapter 18. David has just killed Goliath. So Goliath has been slain, and David is having a conversation. It's a little bit prior, so he's having a conversation with Saul. And it says, when Jonathan heard David speak, Jonathan heart became bound to David because David spoke with faith David spoke with clarity and David spoke with passion and Jonathan standing there going I have never heard this before in my life I have never heard anybody talk with such clarity nobody understands what this is all about David understands what this is. David understands this is about the honor and the glory of the Lord this isn't about Saul. This isn't about the nation. This isn't about the Philistines. This is about the Lord. And Jonathan's like, wow, who else talks like this? And then David had such courage. He's like, y'all don't have to go out. I'll go. I'll go. Nobody needs to go. I'll go. And they're like, here, take some armor. He's like, I can't work with this. I'm going to go out with a bag and a bunch of rocks <laughs> to face a dude that's like nine feet tall. What would you do? A dude standing there with a sword and a spear. A spear, the Bible says, the handle of the, the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, I don't know what a weaver's beam is, but that sounds pretty big. You know, you're going to be like a shish kebab on the end of that thing, you know. 
And you're going to go and fight that guy? I don't know, man. Just think MMA. Let's just put it in context. Somebody that's even your size, but it's really... You're going to jump in a ring with him. No, I don't think so. But he didn't, so Jonathan was moved by his courage. Jonathan was the same kind of guy. So if you know the story of Jonathan, Jonathan did the similar... He did similar things. Jonathan went for a walk with his armor bearer. Jonathan took the hard road. He says, I'm going to engage. I'm going to fight when others won't. He did everything. He, he was that same type. Of, he had that same type of all-in nature. And so when he saw David with his all-in nature, he said, I'm in. I'm with you. You and me. And Jonathan took off his robe. Everything that Jonathan does here is an act of honor. This is a sign, ladies and gentlemen, of what it means to be a true friend. And this is a sign when you can identify true friends in your life and you can identify yourself as a true friend. He took off his robe. David, Jonathan held a princely robe. And so he took off his garment and he honored David. He literally esteemed David above himself. He said, I'm not worthy to wear this robe. You are. He gave him his robe and even his outer tunic. He gave him his armor, which a statement in the old world, when you give you your armor, they're like saying, you're the man. The Greeks, when they would see a warrior that was greater than them, they would throw their armor down at his feet and say, I need to fight naked. This guy's the one that deserves this, not me. That's what it meant. It meant you are worthy of the armor. You are, I value you as a warrior. And it also meant that I'm committing my resources to you. I'm committing to stand with you. I'm committing to be around you. When everybody else runs, David, I won't. And he never did. And he never did. And when David came to his kingdom, do you know who he remembered? The ancestors of Jonathan. He made a special day to make an inquiry. He says, is anybody alive from the house of Jonathan? And what did he say? That I may be kind to them. Because he valued the friendship that Jonathan had given him. That's what a true friend looks like. A true friend esteems you. If you want to be a true friend, esteem someone. Esteem them. Honor them. Don't be jealous, contentious, nippy, backbiting, all that nonsense. Honor them. Esteem them. Stand with them. That's where you know who your friends are. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You thought, I thought those people were my friends. No, I've soon realized they're not. They'll esteem you when everybody else is. Nobody was esteeming David. Nobody was. There was no parade for David. David didn't look like anything. He's just kind of standing there, all ragtag, you know, ghetto style. He's just kind of like, what? What's up? I don't got nothing, man. I, you know, I'm just here. And Jonathan saw in David more than David saw in himself. And Jonathan saw in David what other people could not see. And Jonathan was able to not just recognize the favor of God, but he was able to recognize the valor that was in David's heart. Very important. That's how you know your friends. And that's the type of culture that God creates within his church. That's what he wants, you see. Who would not want to go into a place where everybody is falling all over themselves to bless each other? You're just like, we want to add value to you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. No, I want to add value to you. No, I want to encourage you. No, you, you know, we, can't, we can't outdo each other. You know what I'm saying? I'm blessing you. No, I'm going to bless you. I'm blessing you. No, I'm going to bless you. <laughs> you all know the White Sisters. They go to conferences. Hank was just telling me, uh, someone said, yeah, they always bring me back stuff from conferences. So now it's a rule of mine that when I go to a conference, Sherry and I have to bring something back for the White Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is for you. They're like, oh no, Pastor, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, no, we're doing, you know. You brought us back a book, we're bringing you back some DVDs. <laughs> you bring us back DVDs, we're bringing you the guest speaker. Here you go, huh? <laughs> a culture where we're trying to outbless each other, where we're trying to, that's the atmosphere of love. That's what it means. 
Love is to add value and to esteem. That is the context of the church. What, is, what, is, what does it mean? When Jesus says, the world will know you belong to me by what? The way you doctrinally align with one another. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. The way you worship, no, by the way you love one another. And what does that love mean? I'm telling you what it means. It's not, oh, fellowship, yes, the love of the brethren. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody been there, done that? That's like a pasty Christianity that's fake. You know what I'm saying? It's not real. To esteem and to value and to honor and to stand with and to sacrifice for, that's what he's talking about. That if you come against one of us, you come against all of us. That's the type of spiritual warfare that will just destroy the enemy. You harm one, we're going to release the army of prayer on you. It's true. That's the attitude of the church. We are unified. There's far more that we have in common than we have different. Christ levels the playing field for all of us. All of us. We are family. We are brothers. We are sisters. More so than your own earthly family. Sure. It's absolutely true. We need to remember that. And we need to live in that. And we need to honor one another. We need to be that type of person to others. And we need to allow those people to be that to us. Very important. See, David could have went, oh, no, no, Jonathan. No, you're the prince. And he couldn't receive. David received it. You see that? A lot of people have a hard time receiving from other people. And the reason you have a hard time receiving is probably you're a giver and you're a doer. And usually the givers and the doers are the ones who have the, most hard to have the hardest time receiving. It's true. Because you're used to giving. You don't know what it's like to receive. And so David didn't, didn't deny what was being given to him. It was being honored upon him. Right? A lot of you, you have a difficulty receiving from the Lord. I'll just tell you my journey. God would tell me, Kevin, if I didn't want to give it to you, I wouldn't be offering it. We act all coy. Oh, Lord, no, no. Far be it from you to give such a gift to me. Do you know you dishonor him by not allowing him to bless you? It is his honor to bless you. It is your honor and an honor unto him to receive it. When you do not receive a king's gift, you dishonor him. It's, he views it. He, that's how he views it. So when God offers you something, you should take it. Humbly, graciously, but with gratitude, but embrace it. <laughs> and I guarantee if you go, if this all there is, Lord, I take this. And if you, he's going to tell you there's more. There's more. The problem is he can't give a lot of you more because you've never learned to receive. David took it. I'm sorry, he's being given a prince's robe. Jonathan is saying, I'm trading places with you. I'm submitting myself to you as your servant. That's what he's saying. And David didn't deny. He took the honor because the honor was offered. If you understand where I'm going with that. Next slide. He gave him his armor. Jonathan heard something special in David. He loved him. He honored him. God has allies for you even in the worst situation. Saul was never going to be David's friend. Saul and David weren't going to go fishing together. Saul tried. But as soon as he saw the favor on David's life, he became insanely jealous of it. And so he became, quickly became David's enemy. But God had already given him an ally. Even though, even say this with me, even where there's enemies, there are allies. There are more for me than there are against me. He supported him with his arms and weapons. Saul moves David to Gibeah. So I just want to take this moment and show you just kind of the culture shock that this guy's moving in. Everything God's doing in David's life is going to be a test. Anybody like tests? Very few do. Some do. Yes, test me. 
Everything God's doing in David's life is a test. The trials that you go through, the things that are brought into your life are given to you to test you. What is he testing you with? He's testing you to see what you can carry, what you can handle, and how you're going to react when it's given. That's what he's testing you with. He's testing you not to fail you. He's testing you with the intent to pass you. He's testing you with the intent to give you more. He wants to give you this. But he's like, let's start him here and see how he handles it. Okay, let's give him this. Let's see how he handles it. And when God sees these things in your life, he knows, okay, i got to work with Kevin in this arena. This is where he's falling short. This is where he's not able to carry it. And so I need to work with him in this arena to make him stronger in order that he can carry a greater load. God has more for you than you realize. The word glory is the Hebrew word kavod, and it means weight. Bible tells us to whom he justified, he sanctified, and whom he sanctified, he glorified. It's true. That's literally a process. If you want to look at it as destiny, that's what it is. He justifies you through the blood of Christ. Then once you're now, he says, he sanctifies you. He starts setting you apart. He starts dealing with you on just like the same thing I was just telling you, on your attitudes, on what you think is right. He deals with you on your view of him. He deals with you on your attitude. He starts dealing with you, so he sanctifies you. So it's this process of testing and sanctification with the end result to glorify you, to put weight on your life so that the world knows you belong to him and so that the world knows you lived. That's the point. He wants glory on you. But he cannot put the weight and the substance of your identity on yourself until he goes you through this process of sanctification, of testing, of trial. He was doing the same thing with Saul, but Saul failed miserably. Miserably, he failed. And he's doing the same thing with David. He takes David. So David's a shepherd boy, hasn't worn deodorant in two weeks, wearing rags, sleeping outside with the sheep and the fleas. Wasn't a glamorous life at all. Nobody wanted to be shepherds. They were considered outcasts even in Israel. When they went down to Egypt, the Egyptians were like, get these smelly, dirty people away from us. Just get them away. They didn't want anything to do with them. In Israel, the shepherds were unclean for worship. In Israel, the shepherds couldn't vote, and they were ceremonially unclean. They had to go through a process of cleansing before they could ever worship. So it wasn't a glamorous job. It wasn't a job that, oh, shepherding, 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 shepherding. Smelly, dirty sheep. Sheep bite, beady little eyes. They can't see straight. Peg legs falling over all the time. Sounds like the church, right? <laughs> David take, God takes David from the backside of the desert, brings him into royal court. So he goes from over here, using an outhouse, now he's in the White House. He's in a palace. All of the trappings. He goes from laid back, cool, strum your heart, just be chill, to a place now that's bustling with activity. He's wearing silk. He's got Armani on. You know, he's rolling around. He's got his cologne. He's looking good. He's wearing gold and jewels. People are moving around. He's got personal assistance. He's got all this stuff. He goes from nothing to something, and God was testing him. How is he going to handle abundance? How's he going to handle it? If I put David in a position of abundance, what's he going to do? It tells us over and over again that David behaved wisely. He behaved wisely in that situation. So the Lord looks at him and goes, okay, David's cool on abundance. Let's see how he handles adversity. And the scene shifts. And so they're driving around and Saul's going down the street. And so David would be part of the king's entourage. So we'd have a caravan of escalades going down the street. Saul being his chariot back in the day, but now we'd be in an, he'd been an escalade. Standing up through the sunroof. Looking at the crowd. 
while they sang top 40 songs on the radio, Saul killed his thousands, and David killed his tens of thousands. Saul didn't have a problem with the thousands, he had a problem with the tens of thousands. He's like, wait a second. I killed thousands, but they're saying he kills ten. Are they trying to say he's better than me? You're better than me. <laughs> you see the ego? Saul could not imagine a world where he was not the center of it. He couldn't envision a picture where he wasn't the main person in the frame. That's what he was. That's how he, he ended up there. He didn't start out there, but he ended up there. Saul begins to lose it. He looks at David and he says, people, people love him more than they love me. Ah. What's going to happen except I lose the kingdom? Here's the deal. Whatever Jesus gives you, Amen. nobody can take it from you. Amen. 100%. David could not take the kingdom from Saul if he tried. You're going to see it in the story. Some of you know the story. And David recognized that what God had told him, what Saul had, was not his to take. He recognized that. And had he taken it, he would have paid for it because it's not his to take. What God gave him, the anointing that was on Saul's life, could only be removed by the Lord. And here's an even better story. What Jesus gives you, gifts and callings are without repentance, Christian. This is hard for us. Oh, I'm going to lose my anointing. Who told you that? No, seriously, who told you that? Saul was anointed for life. What's that? Irrevocable. Is irrevocable. God put an anointing on Saul that was irrevocable. The only time that, God, that the anointing of Saul's kingship lifted was when Saul died. So what God puts on your life, it's a lifetime thing. Gifts and callings are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go, eh, no, you're just not quite measuring up. You're not what I was hoping for. You know, even if you're faithless, he's faithful. Jesus has no, no confidence in you. He has confidence in himself. So if you think it's about you, if the gift was predicated upon you and he gave it to you in spite of you, what makes you think he's going to take it away in spite of you? He isn't. He isn't. He isn't. Again, we're talking about diminishment, activation. At any time, Saul could have repented. At any time, Saul could have repented and said, I've been wrong, broke his heart before the Lord, and decided to step into the fullness of his kingship and decided to step into the fullness of his anointing, but he did not. The anointing for kingship was with him the entire time. He just didn't access it. Crickets. The anointing of kingship is on you right now, the entire time. You just may not be accessing it. Through choices, there can be ignorance. You don't know what's going on. Or there can be arrogance. You're moving against it. You're living outside of it. You're making choices in the wrong direction. But the kingdom anointing was on Saul. It never lifted. And at any time he could have done it, but he didn't. It's in your Bible. You can read it. You can see it. This is stuff that's beneath the lines of the scripture. We have to understand the Lord, and then all of a sudden the scripture lifts and becomes even more illuminated to us. We treat it just like text. It's far more than text. It's living and powerful. It's true. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it divides soul from spirit bone from marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart Saul starts to lose it Saul the Lord departed from the Lord he departed from the Lord with his heart and with his actions next slide what's the result of this big theological debate on this one I'm going to clarify it for you real simple Bible says the next day an evil spirit from the Lord <laughs> forcefully came upon Saul and he was prophesying in his house. And while David was playing the lyre, the, the, the harp, as he usually did, Saul picks up a spear and hurls it at David. 
He said, I'm going to pin him to the wall because Saul is just like, I can't take it anymore. This guy looks better than me. He's younger than me. He's got nicer hair than me. The girls like him more. Oh, I hate that guy. He's too Brad Pitt. I just can't stand it. I'm going to kill him. So he throws the spear. People go, oh, the Lord sent an evil spirit. You don't understand spiritual economy, Christian, if you think it's just that lineal. It's not. Devil does nothing but by right of access. Saul, through his actions, his intent and his actions, his heart and his, what he had decided in his heart and the actions that he continually performed had moved away from the Lord. Here's the Lord. Here's his blessing. Saul moved over here. The devil comes before the Father and says, I have a right. I have a right of affliction over him. So what's going on in the book of Job? I know the book of Job coming before. Job had no right of affliction over, the devil had no right of affliction over Job. None. None. But he had one over his children, and so he took it over his children. So you see this whole process begin to unfold. So the devil comes before. I'm just telling you how it works. This is how the spiritual law works. And you can go, I don't agree. I don't think it's like that, Kevin. That's fine. That's fine. How many devils have you encountered? <laughs> I'll go to toe-to-toe with anybody on that one. I don't need to prove myself. So what I'm going to tell you is, is that the devil claims a right. And he holds it up. And he says, I have a right to afflict Saul. Saul has disobeyed you in his heart. He has departed from you. He's against you. And the Lord, at that moment, allowed it. He allowed it. Because the devil invoked a right by God's structure and God's law. He allowed it to happen. The enemy works in the sons of disobedience. Can we get a witness here? Where does he have authority? In those who operate outside and people, that's the unbeliever. No one has nothing to do with the unbeliever, Christian. I'm going to give you three phases of the enemy working in your life. Number one, you're going to go through stuff. You're going to go through affliction and resistance just because the devil's not going to give you a clean run at your destiny. If you think he's going to give you a clean run at your destiny, you need to throw cold water on your face and wake up. He's going to, the kingdom suffers violence. He's going to oppose dominion in your life. He's going to oppose the inbreaking of power in your life. He's going to oppose it. You have to forcefully oppose him. You have to take your rightful place and know what you are and know who you are and go through it. That's one phase. You go through that. That is a temporary stage. That, that is something that does not go on for years. The enemy with a right of access, he camps in your home. He's there. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Nothing ever seems to go right. This always falls apart. And everything that I do, it just keeps turning this way. He has a right. The enemy has a right. I don't believe that. Jesus has redeemed me from the curse. Okay, I'm going to argue that one with you. True. But have you appropriated it? You have to appropriate what is yours. And until you appropriate what is yours, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Jesus isn't going to do it for you. He's given you the power, and he tells you, like he told Israel, go in there and drive the inhabitants out of the land and claim your territory. That's what he told them in the book of Joshua. It's the same. It's a mirror of all of us, of our purposes, in God's purposes in our life. We cross the Jordan, enter into promises, and we've got to fight for the territory that he says is ours. If you don't fight, he's not going to just, he doesn't yield it. He has to yield when you fight. So the enemy has a right of access. Something there. I got news for you. He's not going to tell you. Well, why? When's he going to tell me what his access is? He'll never will. 
He never will. He will afflict you, and he will afflict your children's 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 children until somebody gets spirit-filled, until somebody engages the Holy Spirit and says, what's the problem here, Lord? That's the only time it changes. The Holy Spirit is the only one that's going to illuminate the problem. He's going to illuminate the problem. He's going to show you your grandfather. And you're going to go, oh, it has something to do with my grandfather. And then you're going to shrug your shoulders and walk away. Again, you don't know him. If there's one thing I try to teach you, God has told me this. One of the mandates on me, God told me in Jeremiah, my people do not call upon me days without number. And one of the mandates that God has directed, there's a few of them, he has directly told me that this is what I want you to do, is he has told me I want you to get my people to call on me. My people do not call upon me days without number. Kevin, I want you to teach them to call on me. Well, we need to do interesting. Yes, prayer is part of it. This is how you call on him. Lord, what is going on in my life? What's going on here? Your grandfather. Well, what? Then we go, oh, that's something to a granddad. Then we ask, What's, what about my grandfather? And he's going to show you something else. He's going to show you something else. And he's going to point you to the root. But he'll stop when you do. You don't want to ask another question. It doesn't go any further. That's how Jesus is. You, well, look how he did it. He'd do things and he'd wait for a question. Nobody's got a question. He moves on. He's not telling you more than you ask him for. Amen. Eat of my body and drink of my blood. Everybody's like coming going, yep. Yep, everybody, did you hear that? Jesus said, eat of his body and drink of his blood. <laughs> then you see Peter going, what does this mean? And then we get all of these questions begin to open up with answers. The answers would have never come unless somebody engaged it with a question. Never. If you do not ask him, he's not going to tell you. Not going to tell you. I do this stuff with myself and all my wife and I, we live this. This is, I'm not reading from you from a book or telling you some theory. We are practitioners of this gospel and we are practitioners of this faith and we live it. We live it. The enemy's going to tell you something with your God. He's going to tell you, you believe a lie. And you're going to go, oh, Jesus told me I believe a lie. And you're going to run in a corner and start sucking your thumb. That's a clear indicator you don't know you're loved. If Jesus rebukes you, you run in a corner and start sucking your thumb. You don't know who you are. You don't know, you don't know him and you don't know you. You don't know that he tells you because he loves you. You don't know that he's telling you not to reject you. He's telling you to correct you, to bring you forward. There's an identity crisis. So when Jesus corrects you and you go suck your thumb, the first idea that you need to come to is, I don't know who I am. I don't understand who I am. If I feel that he's rejecting me, all who come to me, I'll in no way cast out. But he said mean things to me, Pastor. Jesus said mean things to me. Grow up, man. Grow up. I'll give you, I'll tell you this my story in my life. I do this all the time. Most recent one was probably less than a year. This is with a big rebuke. I get rebukes all the time, but I've learned to, I used to, I used to be the guy that sucked my thumb. Everybody, no, 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 you should let me take a big. That's why I'm able to tell you. I'd be sucking my thumb in the corner, and the Lord go, Kevin, you don't know you're loved. And I'd be like, oh, you say something mean, and now you tell me you don't, I don't know that I'm loved. At some place, you've got to grab yourself and give yourself some high karates and tell yourself to stand up and stop being baby, pouty, feely, touchy, believing Christian. 
He tells you because he cares. I'm praying, okay? I pray about, I believe in destiny. Talk about destiny. I want this, Lord. This is what Philly called me. So I tell the Lord all this stuff. The Lord goes to me. I'll tell you two of them. One thing I'm asking him for, I'm asking him for this great stuff. I come, Lord, I want this. And I'm shaking. I'm like, I'm asking you for this, Lord. I want it. And I'm thinking I'm doing this really great act of faith by asking God for this big thing. He looks at me and he goes, you can't handle that. Crickets. <laughs> oh, Jesus would never say that to you, Pastor. Yes, he would. You know why? Because he's looking for a response from me. Just like the Syrophoenician woman. He told her, I don't give what is holy to dogs. The bread is for the children. And Jesus offended her and left it there to see if she would push back. And she didn't get anything until she pushed back. And so he offends you to see if you have faith to push back. Amen. You, don't, you, you can't handle it. And I was just kind of like, what? And so for like two days I'm walking around going, what? He told me I can't handle it. I'm like, what? And then I'm reading and all this stuff. And I'm like, this doesn't even I'm going, okay, Lord. If you say that I can't handle it, then I'm giving you permission to take me apart, and you better know what you're doing when you say this. I'm giving you permission to take me apart emotionally. I'm giving you permission to take me apart spiritually. I'm giving you a to take apart all of my doctrine, to take apart all of my attitudes, to take apart all of my beliefs, all of the systems within me, even take me apart physically if you have to, to put me back together in order that I can carry what I'm asking for. Where's your faith? That's my faith. That's what I believe. And you know what he does? He takes me apart. It's, it's not fun. He's going to pull you apart emotionally and he's going to show you all of your emotional dysfunctions. Oh, I don't know if I can handle that. Then you can't have it. Then you can't have it. Well, I want it and I don't want him to do that. Well, you, you can't have it, people. It doesn't work like that. He's telling you you can't handle it. You can't handle what you're asking for. That's what he's telling me. Well, I want that, but he said, if you want this, Kevin, I'm going to have to dismantle you. I'm going to have to show you where your fear is. I'm going to have to show you where your dysfunction is. I'm going to have to show you where your insecurities lie. I'm going to have to show you. I'm going to have to come up against your attitudes of what you think you know. You think you know things, and you know nothing. And at the time, I was like, well, I don't really think like I know a lot. I, was, I wasn't like arrogant. But then he would show me what I thought I knew, and I'd be like, wow. And he'd go, you don't know anything. And he'd throw it away. And I'd be kind of standing there like, well. But I thought that way for 10 years, Jesus. He's like, it doesn't matter. It's out the window. I'm going to teach you a new way of thinking. And it, it, it is uncomfortable. If anybody tries to tell you that that process is easy and comfortable and friendly and Shangri-La, they they, they, they've never experienced that process. Never experienced it. He's going to take your world apart, literally. Then another one, God gives me a vision, starts moving me towards high calling things, tells me all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, woo. And the Lord deals with me. I'm like, when's this going to happen? I'm pressing up against it, as you should. And he says to me, you have the sin of unbelief. Some of you have heard me say this. Try that one on. Our problem, we don't want to engage the Lord. I want to engage the Lord. I don't want to play this. I want to live this. I don't want to know of it. I want to experience it. Not in some pseudo-religious, you know, just all this, this fake Christianity is the most nauseating thing I've ever lived. What did, I, I don't want to live that. I don't want to be that. I don't, not when there's more. And I ask him, and he tells me, you have the sin of unbelief. And I'm like, where? And I actually argued that one. I had a list. I'm like, unbelief? Are you kidding me? 
I don't know anybody that's risked what I've risked. I don't know anybody that's done what I've done. You, have you seen what I've done? Have you, you know, and I mean, I'm not like make, making boasts, but I'm like, faith demonstrated, faith demonstrated, faith demonstrated. So I'm giving him this list of all these places where I was like, boom, with my faith. And then he says to me, if you really believed that I was going to do what I told you I was going to do, you would be living differently. If you really believed I was going to give you that, you wouldn't talk about it. You'd begin to align your life towards it. You'd begin to live towards it. You'd begin to take the steps towards it. You'd make the risks that are associated with it. You'd begin to plan and determine that as your pathway. But you don't believe it. You hold it up as a dream. You have the sin of unbelief. How many of you have the sin of unbelief? How many of you? God has given you dreams. He's given you visions. I just had a lady come to me after the service and she said, you wrecked me. You literally, with that statement, you wrecked me. She said, God has been telling me to do something for four years and I haven't done it. And I said, what's stopping you? The only one stopping you is you. That's it. No one's stopping you. God's given you a dream, a vision, and you have not done anything towards that. It's over here. It's safe. It's a Sunday dream. It's out here. It's a miracle. Someday, somewhere over the rainbow, that's going to happen. Or, here's the biggest one, and this is a big, this is a false dogma that churches teach. It, well, when God wants me to have it, He's going to give it to me. I'll see you on the other side of eternity, and you're still going to be telling me that. You're waiting on Jesus. He's waiting on you. The key is, he's given you something. You create the plan. You say, this is what you want, Lord. This is what I think it looks like. And then you let him come back to you with another idea or an affirmation on that idea. Then he's also going to ask you, do you know what this is going to cost? What it's going to cost you personally? Do you count the cost on this? you know what this is going to cost? I just asked her. I said, so if you had an investor standing in front of you with the $4 million that you need, are you ready to execute this in 10 months? And she said, no. And I'm like, you have any idea why the investor wouldn't be showing up? You have any idea why, you, you know, th that would be a big clue as to why that's not aligning because you have work to do and you've not, you've not done your part to partner with it because you truly don't believe it's going to happen. If you did believe this was going to happen, you'd have it ready. You'd have a portfolio ready and you'd be able to whip a book out and give a presentation. This is what God's called me to do. You'd be ready, but you're not. And that tells me you don't believe and you have the sin of unbelief. Oh, we don't want to hear that. Oh, don't tell me that. Kevin, you're spanking us this morning. You don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. And what ends up happening, next slide, is jealousy begins to come into your heart. Because you, let's just be honest, are too fearful to do the thing that God has told you to do. And so you become jealous of the ones who are actually doing what God has called them to do. And your jealousy is rooted in your own fear. But you're too arrogant and blind and prideful to acknowledge that it's your fear that's the root of the jealousy. You're jealous because somebody else is doing what you want or someone else is doing a dream or a vision that God's put on their heart and they're actually risking towards it and you won't come and you're going somewhere over the rainbow when what you need to do is confront your fear as to why you won't do it. You need to confront you. You're the problem, not Jesus, not the other person. Jealousy is rooted in a mindset of deficiency. It says there's never enough or there's not enough. You want to know where jealousy comes from? Jealousy comes from your own fear and jealousy comes from wanting something that somebody else has without realizing what's actually yours. God has a vision for every single one of you. He has a plan, a purpose, a lane for you to live in, go for it, go down, all that other stuff. 
when I'm jealous, I don't have enough to do. And so I tell Jesus, I say, clearly, I don't have enough to do. Clearly, you haven't told me what, what I need to do. Or when I'm jealous, yeah, I have to look at and go, what is it that I'm not doing that Jesus has told me to do that makes me jealous because, oh, he's got it easy or she's got it easy or they just never had any problem. Well, who cares? Like Jesus told John, what is that to you? You do what I tell you. You follow me. You do what I'm telling you. Jealousy comes from that. You have got to be brutal with your fear. If you want destiny, this is what it looks like. It looks like this. Somebody goes, well, I know what my destiny is. Well, we're going to go down that lane. But there are people in this room where God has divinely spoken to you. You've gotten glimmers. You've gotten a highlight reel of what, what lies in the future. And I'm telling you here today that you, you cannot hold it up as a dream. You have to engage it. You have to engage it. And you have to confront your fear and your inadequacy in the process. If you are not willing to confront your fear and your feelings of inadequacy, you will never have it. Ever. It's a kingdom and a culture of risk. That's what it is. That's part of the essence of the kingdom. Jealousy is rooted in deficiency. When you become jealous, you say, oh, well, there's no more room for anyone else. You get it all. Well, who told you that? <laughs> Heaven's not broke. Heaven's never going to be broke. God is not a God of deficiency. He is a God of sufficiency. Say it with me. In the kingdom, there's always more. If he doesn't have it, he'll make it. If he needs more room, he'll blow the walls out. Amen. It's what he does. Amen. He's not limited. He's limited only by you Amen. and your perspectives of him. He's limited by your mindset. Amen. It's what it says he was, in, he was in Nazareth and he couldn't do a lot of miracles because of their unbelief. It's all about faith. No, it was their mindset. Their mindset produced the unbelief, but the unbelief was rooted in the way that they saw him. Their view of him was wrong. And because their view of him was wrong, they could not see the power that was available to them. Oh, he's just a carpenter. Oh, I don't believe Jesus is like the way you're talking about, Kevin. I was not taught that in, you know, in the schools that I went to. They didn't teach me that. You know, well, I don't know what to tell you. you know, I, your mindset is what limits God's power in your life. Amen. You see with Jonathan, he had a limit. God can do anything, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. He doesn't need an army. He just needs me and this dude. That's all he said. That's what he said. And what brought forth the miracle was that Jonathan had a mindset that was, was in line with the capacity that God carried or carries. You're, you're the problem. The only one holding you back is you. It's true. The only one holding you back is you. Stop blaming your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your cousin, your upbringing. Ma, I come you, I didn't come from the same. Nobody does. I don't care what family you come from. You were born into a glorious family. Amen. You were an heir of a king and you were a son and a daughter of the highest. You are princes and princesses of a world that is far superior than the one that we are in. Amen. And you alone, by his spirit, have access to that world. Amen. The unbeliever has no access, but you do. The other thing is fearful. You're also lazy. You don't want to make the effort. Oh, <laughs> oh I don't know, Pastor. You know, to change the way I think, that just sounds like work, man. To actually believe God for something, that just sounds like work. You mean I got a plan? Ah, oh, man, I don't want a plan. Lazy. I walked by the field of the, of the sluggard. The, the wall was torn down. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands, the rest so your poverty will come upon you like an armed man. We don't sleep in the time of harvest. We don't sleep in the time of vision. 
When God gives you a vision, he trusts you. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't do something with it, he's going to take it right out of your hand and he's going to give it to another. And you're going to go, oh, I had that idea 10 years ago. (laughs) That's going to be you. That's going to be you. You're going to be the one going, oh, I had that idea 10 years ago. Yeah, what'd you do with it? Nothing, but I had that idea. It's true. Your fear, your laziness, your mentality, those are your barriers. You have to confront your barriers. People, this is, this, this again, I, I, I just, I have to say this because this is monumental. The church teaches this wrongly. We teach that God is withholding something from you and it's all dependent upon the Lord. It is not. It is a divine partnership between you and him. Everything he does in this world, he needs partners. Everything. The devil understands the same principle. He could do nothing until he brought Adam and Eve into a partnership. He can do nothing in your life until he brings you into an agreement. So I told first service, it looks like this. Satan comes into your house, sits down on your couch, starts having a conversation with you, telling you, look around. Oh, you know, yeah, you got problems. I got problems. You're broke. I'm broke. My family's always, your family's always broke. My family's always been broke. You're always going to be broke. I'm always going to be broke. Now he's, oh, bound to a lie. Now I have it. Now I have a habitation. He can only create habitations. He creates habitations through lies. And some of you have had a lie with you the entire life. He's incepted it in your generation, and every generation has followed an agreement with that lie, and he continues to operate in accordance with the lie. He has a right. He's not randomly doing things, people. He does random things, but there's a big difference between random and this, what I'm talking about. He does things because he has a right. And he's brought you into an agreement. I told this the first service. Every man in my father's line has diabetes except one. Except one. And I'm standing in front of you. Why? We can give God glory. But he didn't do it without me appropriating it. He gave me the power. And I threw a line in the sand. And I said, no plague comes near my house. I renounce that curse. I have my blood does not flow from the earth. My blood flows from heaven. I make deliberate confessional statements and declarations into the promises of God and I stood my ground. And I renounced every part of it. My wife's family, same thing. All of her family, all of her mother's side of the family has has the same issue. Same physical issue, except her. Well, I just, you know, God just must be favoring Sherry. He just might, just must be, you know, it's just a favor. Her whole family are believers, most of them, but they all suffer, except her. Well, it's just a favor of God. Jesus just loves Sherry more. That's why. No, she lays right. She lays claim to her inheritance. And she says, this is mine, and you will not occupy this position in me. You have no authority over me in this life. This is my inheritance. Every believer has it. You just don't appropriate it. So we sit there and think Jesus is going to do it for you. He's not going to do it for you. He's handed you the power and he tells you to use it. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons and cleanse lepers. He didn't say I'm going to do it for you. It's called an emphatic imperative. And in the Greek, you know what that means? It's a command. Alex, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And Alex can go, okay, but I don't know what I'm doing. And Jesus will go, great. Because what he's looking for is he's looking for an agreement. If he can get you into an agreement, he'll take you through the process. But the problem is, is most of us will never come into the agreement. We won't even come into the agreement. You don't have to know what you're doing. You don't. 
Well, just Jesus expects me to know. He called me. He must think I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. I got news for you. You don't. Anybody know what they're doing? You get married, you think you know what you're doing? You do not know what you're doing. You have kids, you think you know what you're doing? You do not know what you're doing. I got news for you. Everything you think you know is going to go right out the window. You don't know. But he's okay with you not knowing because he'll teach you. This is the point. What you're called to requires testing. So what happens here? This is what it looks like. I'm going to see where I'm going to go with this. I'm going to jump to the next slide. Um, so here, I'll just read this. He who is faithful with least is faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least can, will also be unjust in much. This is a process of a promotion in the kingdom. Jesus lays it out to you in three forms. It's called a triad. If he says it once, pay attention. If he says it twice, pay attention. If he says three times, you better, you better really pay attention because there's power on it. A threefold cord is not easily broken. He's going to say the same thing three different ways. He says, if you're not faithful with little, if you're unfaithful with little, you cannot be trusted with much. In other words, you won't be promoted, and probably a reason you're not being promoted is you're not faithful with little. If you're not faithful with money, you're not getting any more. It's right there. It's, it's right there. If you do not do what I tell you to do with the money, I will not give you more. Then he says this, and if you are not faithful with other people's stuff, no one will commit to you what is your own. Now, the beauty of that, I want to pull that out first. Jesus wants to give you that which is your own. It's right there. But the only way he can do it is when you begin to honor this process. Amen. He will give you what belongs to you when you begin to understand that you need to be faithful with the little. Some people want promotions. They want jobs. They want, you, know, you, can't even be, you can't even show up on time and you're believing God to be the boss. No, let's get real here. People can't even show up on time and they want to supervise the whole office. Anybody know anybody like that? You're like, I'm like that. <laughs> Jesus goes, I'll give you the promotion, Kevin, but how about we show up on time? How about we work with excellence? How about we stop complaining about everybody around you? Start blessing. And how about you be faithful in this little place that I put you in order that I might see that on your life and begin to promote you? Then he says, can I be faithful with what belongs to another? Well, what belongs to another? A rental car, we did all that. But what, how about this? This is a big one. Are you faithful when someone else gives you their testimony of what God did in their life? Do you celebrate that? Or do you go into jealousy? Because what you're doing is you're being faithful with what belongs to another. They're giving you something that belongs to them. Look what the Lord did in my life. Or look at this job promotion that I got. Or look at the children that God has. Do you do that or do you back in to go into jealousy? Because if you go into jealousy, you're not being faithful with what belongs to another person. We must honor what belongs to another. Their joy. Somebody gets an upgrade and a promotion spiritually. You should go, man, I'm so glad. May you go to the heights of heaven. May God establish every part of your life in destiny and hope. Because I know what he does for you. He'll do for me. Amen. That's our attitude. Amen. That's what we must be. Because he's not holding you back. And if you feel you're being held back, ask Jesus, what's holding me back? But hold the chair when he says that. He's going to point the finger right at you. He's going to go, Kevin, you're your worst enemy. Amen. You're your worst enemy. Until I get you right, I, can't, I know what you want. I've put it in your heart. You feel like a beacon towards it. It's like a radio beacon drawing you. But you can't seem to get on course. And here's why. Here's why. And until I get to the point where I'm beginning to work on me and get down into the raw and get out of guilt, this is again, we get all guilt. Oh, God, you're so, I'm so guilty. I'm so less than. If Christians walk around and parade themselves with arrogance, they don't, they're, 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 they're the same as you. They're no different. Everybody's equal. We're all on this journey. And no matter what, you, you get to this level and you want to go to the next level, 
you're going to have to go through the same process. So you better get used to it. You, 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 you better get used to it. So you go here and you go, man, I made that journey, man. I'm here. Woo, thank you, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And then you're like, then you feel him calling you because the glory, it's glory to glory. He does, the Lord doesn't stop. He wants to go to glory. Then he's like, I got something else for you. And you're like, yeah, I think I want to go there too. And then you got to go through the whole process again. You go through the whole process again. So it's important that you learn this process. I know I'm going long, but I, for some reason, there's some value of importance upon what I'm supposed to say to you. Next slide. Jealousy is rooted in unbelief and ignorance. You don't know who you are. You don't really believe who you believe it. You have to recognize your jealousy. Here's how you kill jealousy. Praise and gratitude. Praise and gratitude. You say, well, I feel fake when I do it. Well, then fake it anyway. <laughs> That's true. Fake it anyway. Fake it. It's funny when you start faking it and you develop a habit, then a habit becomes a lifestyle. One of the things that you notice when Jesus gives us words is he never tells us to attach emotion to it unless we're praising him. You praise your heart and soul. But there are things that he tells us and he doesn't even require that there be an emotion attached to it. He just tells you to do it. Which means he doesn't care how you feel. Jesus doesn't care how I feel. Not in regards to his commands. He cares how you feel and what you're going through and what you're, where you are. But when he's told you to do something, he's not asking you to vote. He's not. He's not asking for your opinion on the matter. He isn't. Church seems to think we get to get we get to have an opinion on these issues. We don't have an opinion. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's our opinion. When you're in relationship and on course with God, there's a dialogue that happens where God will actually want an exchange from you. He'll actually want something from you in a more relational point. But he never brings you there until you do the basics. You, you're not going to get that interaction with him in destiny, in hope, in future until you're doing the basics. Because that basic is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And so you know what he's going to tell you? Lord, he's going to go read your Bible. No, I want you to commit to church. No. He's going to keep bringing you back to the five basics. And you're going to stay in, you're going to stay in elementary school until you get the five basics down. And then once you get the five basics down, then he's going to begin to show you an architectural plan or he's going to be able to show you what he wants to do in the future. And then that creates the dialogue. But the dialogue is only created through obedience. Amen. Many Christians hear silence when they, ask, when they talk to the Lord. He'll talk to them about other things, but when it comes to the course of their life, he's silent. And the reason that he's silent is because he's told you what to do and you won't do it. And so there's nothing more that he's going to tell you. I've already told you what to do. You won't do it. When you do that, I'll tell you more. Oh, but, 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 and you go, but I hear him over here, and I hear him over here, and I hear him over here. Yeah, you're hearing him on all these worlds except this one. And the reason you're not hearing him in this one, the one that relates to you in the future of your life, is because there's something connected to deaf and dumb. Deaf and dumb is directly connected to disobedience. When you are not hearing God or God is silent on an issue, he's either already told you and you're not doing it. It's direct, deaf and dumb is directly connected to disobedience. Directly. Deaf and dumb spirit in the boy, Jesus rebuked the whole generation when he said, faithless generation, how long must I bear with you? Whole generation. Deaf and dumb had entered because they were completely disobedient to the things that he had told them. Completely. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. Right there's your five. And I'm going to tell you, believer, no matter where you go and every time you proceed in your life, he's going to keep pushing you back here. It's going to keep pushing you back here. It's going to keep telling you. Until you do this, we're not going here. Until you do this, until you pass fifth grade, Kevin. 
We're not going to junior high. We're not going to sixth grade. It's not going to happen until you pass. So I'm going to skip this. So I'm going to go down here, keys to destiny. I'm going to close it right here. I'll talk a little bit maybe about this next week. You have to recognize jealousy in your life and kill it with gratitude. Next slide. David honored Saul. What that basically was going to say was David honored Saul even when Saul mistreated him. So we see Saul intentionally mistreating David, and David still honored Saul even though he was being mistreated. David wasn't just being mistreated. He was being publicly humiliated. How do you handle public humiliation? If we're humans, we don't handle it very well. (laughs) Saul publicly humiliated David, and David didn't retaliate even though he could. Honor, gratitude, and humility. Honor is access. So we have to honor. Here's the keys right here. Self-awareness. Self-awareness is the key to success, not self-awareness in some human term. I'm talking about self-awareness from an identity standpoint. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? What do you filter your life for? When somebody, when you see your life, do you say, I'm a physician, I'm a mechanic, I'm a this, I'm a that? How do you see it? Or do you see yourself in light of who you are in God's eyes, which is a son of the highest? There's even levels of that with Christians. Oh, I'm a servant of God. Uh, or oh, I'm a friend of God. Well, I'm a son of the highest. I, I, am, I am a son of, a high, of the highest king. So now what is the responsibility? That is the identity that is everything I filter my life is. So now what are my responsibilities? So if you're looking at your life and I'm an athlete, you're going to view your life and all my responsibilities relate to me being an athlete. If you view yourself entirely as a son of the highest, you're going to view every responsibility that I have relates to the identity. What does the Lord want from me? Well, he wants me about his business, about my father's business. And that goes into the marketplace. It's irrelevant of where you work. You're in your father's business. You're a missionary in your workplace. You go, I don't know what that means. Start asking him. You know, your, 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 your neighborhood, all of those things. It filters through our identity. This is destiny. And until you get this, you're not going here. Then what's your purpose? What is God asking for you? Not just in the immediate sense, but what is he asking? Is there a high vision for your life? What is it? Why do you want that? Why? Everything we do, we ask why. Everything it has to be associated with why. I want to, I want to, I don't know, create a business. Why do you want to do that? Because I want to be rich. <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> Your motive's wrong. You want to, you, I want to, I want to create wealth and opportunity for other people. And I want to create an engine that fuels and feeds the kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. Happy day. If that's your true motivation, you've just aligned with heaven. And you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Everything else is going to come to you. But if your sole motivation is to enrich yourself, you're out of line. It's the same guys with people in ministry. They, well, I want to I put my name on books or sign 8 by 10 glossies or have my face on a billboard or something. Your motive's wrong. Your motive is entirely wrong. You may achieve success, but that's not the success the kingdom is going to bless. I want kingdom success because kingdom success is lasting. So who are you? What are you? What are you about? What is your purpose in life? Why do you want to do it? What's your motive? You have to ask yourself your motive. I spent a long time. God tells me to plant a church. I'm like, why? Why? Why do you want me to plant a church? And, I, I, and then I asked him. He tells me that I have to ask myself, why do I want to do this? And I was really like, well, I really don't want to do this, but he's telling me to do this, so I better figure out what my motive is to do it. You know, and I want to do it for these reasons. You have to find out your reason. We're going to do a school. I do the same thing. Why are we doing a school? I have this dialogue with him. You're calling for a school, okay? What does that look like? What do you want? How, you know, why do you want us to do this? What is the purpose of this? What do you want to achieve? And I let him come back to me with what he's telling me. And then I begin to tell him what I want to do, and then I listen to him. And I listen to him. 
I said, there's lots of schools. He said, Christian school. I go, there's lots of Christian schools. He goes, spirit-filled Christian school. And I'm like, oh, that would be different. I want you to do this. Well, there's going to be a lot of problems with this. I don't know. We're going to have a lot of difficulty doing what you're asking, Lord. I'm, I'm dialoguing with him. Why? Because I'm basically obedient. I'm not in disobedience. So there's a dialogue that's happening. He's conversing with me. And I tell him, there's the issues, Lord. Here's the issues. And then he tells me, this is what I want. This is what I want. He says, I want you to build me two factories. So he told me. I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do with that. How do I do that? What do you want? And he begins to tell me. Right? He tells me, I want you to build a prophetic culture here. So we start doing that. Figuring it out. Now he tells me, I want you to build a miracle culture. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know. You know if you think you know what a miracle culture is, please tell me because I'd like to see it. But I didn't know what he's telling me prophetic. And he starts telling me how I want to build your prophetic, prophetic culture. Prophetic is the foundation of kingdom. Prophet, priest, king, I want you to build this for me. I want this what I want. So I'm like, okay. I don't know what I'm doing, but we'll try. <laughs> now he's telling me, I just told, I told a couple people here. I said, I feel like, what's the Lord telling you? And I go, he's telling me to build a miracle culture. And I don't even know, I have not even the first idea of what that means. But he's gradually showing and will show and continue. And I believe he's going to do it. I believe he's going to create a culture of miracles. This place is going to be an atmosphere of miracles. It's like miracles. Everybody's going to be like, we're going to be out doing each other with miracles. That's a miracle. Well, this is my miracle. Miracles everywhere. Culture of miracles. He told me I was on when I was away. I try to pray every time I'm away with him. I told me, he's like, I want you to build me a machine. This is how he talks to me. I know how he talks to you, but how he tells me, I want you to build me a machine. I want you to build me an engine, a machine that I can focus on what I want and be able to execute when I want it. I know, land the plane, I know. Are you getting anything out of this? All right, this is better than a YouTube video at least. All right, so I'm going to tell you this. I want you to, because I want you to own it because God will do it with you. He'll do this and more. God starts telling me, this is what I want. He starts, I, I start, it starts off with prayer. I'm like, Lord, I'm a little, I'm, I'm jealous in a good way of Google. Not because of Google, but I'm like, look at these guys. I go, these guys got gazillions of money. They can do anything they want whenever they want. They can just wing it and just make something up and do it. And I started telling him, like, why is the kingdom, why are we on the outside of this? You know, why, why is it that, like, if we, why can't we just, and so I felt like the Lord starts talking to me. I'm going to show you. He starts telling me, I want you to build a machine. I'm like, I don't know how to build that machine. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then he starts showing me. This is, and I'm, we're going to build a machine. We're going to build a machine. It might be a little tiny machine. It might be like a radio, you know, kind of thing. You know, it might be a little thing, but it's going to be powerful, you know. But I felt like the Lord told me, I want you to build a machine. And this machine, when I tell you to execute this, you're going to do it. When I tell you to do that, you're going to do it. When I tell you to do that, you're going to do it because you're going to have a process in place and we're going to be able to do it. That's what we're going to build. So why do I tell you this? I try to get you guys to understand how God interacts with you. And I try to get you guys to understand to believe God for something and hear him and begin to engage him and begin to step into it. And he'll dialogue with you. But you've got to get the basic obedience thing down. How do you want to do it? When do you want to do it? Like right now. So that's kind of the idea. So I hope you got something out of that. I'm landing the plane. There's a lot of weight on that one part of the conversation. I just really felt weight. So that's for somebody that's been here. That's here. You've been hearing stuff. You've been holding stuff off. You've been delaying. So we're just going to pray. So stand up. I'm just, we're going to do an impartation. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. Culture of risk, right? Say this, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to who I am. Open my eyes to who, I, who you are. 
Open my eyes in a, new, in a new way, in a broader way, in a living way to what my future is and to what my destiny is. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to work in my life in areas of basic obedience and in areas that are hindrances to what you want to do with me. Okay, don't pray it if you can all go silent on this statement, but if you're going to pray it, he's going to do it. I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, I give you permission to take me apart. So if you don't want to pray that, that's fine. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to take me apart and to reform me into the person that you have created me to be. I don't want to think about destiny. I don't want to just talk about destiny. I want to experience destiny. I want everything that you have for me. I want to walk in my purpose, in my destiny. I want to see your kingdom come forth in my life in every way. Okay, an impartation of power. I just want you to just feel power. I just want to release power to you. I just want you to feel power coming inside of you. You're going to feel like you're powering up. I want you to give yourself permission to receive power. So power is coming into you. You're feeling warm. You're getting the goosebump rush. You're feeling power. Some of you are just experiencing faith. You're experiencing peace. But I just want you to let that happen. Let it just saturate. Let it soak you. And I want you to just... I want clarity to come into your mind. I want you to let the power come into your being. And I just want clarity to come into your mind. Everything gets very, very clear. It's just like still water so that God can move over the still waters and God can speak over the still waters. And just say this to you. Say this, Father, this is my offering to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God loves you. We love you. <laughs> That's enough. Peace and time, and I forgive what's left behind as I.